Well, Psalm 46. We are moving through them. You know, there are some of these psalms that are less well-known, and it's actually a great joy and a privilege to speak and to teach out of some of the lesser-known psalms. And let me just tell you why, from a pastoral perspective and from a Bible teacher's perspective, I get to teach through some of the lesser-known psalms. And on the other side of that psalm, I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> yeah, learn something new out of that one. I'm thinking, boy, not everybody's probably seen that before. <laughs> you know, and pastors, kind of sort of Bible teachers have this uh, thing that they do with their own selves. But then there's other passages, other psalms that you come to, and you're just sort of sitting there going, boy, I tell you, I really feel awfully dumb. <laughs> uh, I really feel incompetent and insufficient to be able to talk and preach out of this particular psalm. And Psalm 46 is the latter of the two groups because Psalm 46 is such an influential psalm. Psalm 46 is actually the hymn which Martin Luther wrote to commemorate the um, sort of the message of the Protestant Reformation. If I were to ask you to tell me a little bit about Martin Luther, most people would associate Martin Luther with a great scripture text of Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. And the Bible said, Paul said, the just shall live by faith. And anybody that has ever read anything by Martin Luther, by the way, I'm thinking now of the best biography that I know in print right now by Roland Martin. Uh, it's entitled, Here I Stand. It's a uh, biography of Mr. Martin Luther. It's fantastic. Highly recommended if you have opportunity to pick it up. Uh, no matter what you've heard about Luther, uh, sort of file that in the back cabinet somewhere and just read that particular bio biographical sketch. And there are several others that I forget the name of them now that come to mind. But if you've studied Martin Luther's life at all, you know his salvation verse was Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. And there's a lot more to say about that, but here's what I want to bring to your attention, is it's not just the book of Romans that influenced Martin Luther, it's also the book of Psalms. Because Psalm 46 is probably one of the most often overlooked and influential passages in the life and testimony of Mr. Martin Luther. This particular psalm, Psalm 46, played a key role in the salvation of Mr. Martin Luther. Luther taught through the book of Psalms for many years and many times, and he loved and held them dearly to his heart. Perhaps the psalm out of all the psalms that Martin Luther taught through that inspired him the most was Psalm number 46, during many of Luther's dark and depressive times when he found himself under persecution of the Roman Catholic Church at the time of the great Protestant Reformation, Luther would often ask his co-laborer, Philip Melanchthon, to join him in the singing of the 46th Psalm. Now, Luther sort of reimagines some of the words of Psalm 46 
And in this, he says, a sure stronghold, our God is he, a timely shield and weapon. Our help he'll be and set us free from every ill can happen. This is sort of Luther's, uh, if you've ever studied him, he was one of the first people to give the Bible in the common language of the lay people that he ministered to. Luther was the first person to translate the Bible into German. And he did that because at that time in church history, did you know that for a thousand years, regular church people did not have access to a Bible? It's called the Dark Ages. The Bible would have been read in Latin in the Western church, and average church members were not taught Latin as a spoken language at that time. You had to go to seminary, to university to learn the language. And so the Bible was not accessible to the common layperson. And one of the great contributions of Mr. Martin Luther was that he gave the people the word of God. He translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into the vernacular tongue of the people that he ministered to, uh, the German language and the German people. Now, I want to quote one of the things that uh, that, uh, Martin Luther says about Psalm 46. Are you listening? This is very interesting. Quote, We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin, end quote. Now that's talking about, that's Martin Luther uh, quoting and he's speaking about the four. 46th Psalm. Now, from a Bible teacher's perspective, I'm already behind the eight ball. I've already sort of uh, bitten off more than I can chew. And so you pray for me this morning that I would be able to work through the material that I have in a way that honors the Lord. Perhaps no other psalm captures the intensity, severity, and hope of the great Protestant Reformation than the 46th Psalm. Let us come unto this great poem to be strengthened in our confidence in the Lord whilst we are fraught with many dangers on every side. So we, like the early reformers of the church, may persevere in faith for the kingdom and glory of our God. What was it about Psalm 46 that stirred such great faith and works from the Reformation Christians? In our study, we will consider several key points that will hopefully help us to live as faithful believers in a contemporary church desperately in need of reforming. I have three simple points this morning. Number one, a mighty fortress is our God. That's probably not very original, but hey. Number one, a mighty fortress is our God. It's the first stanza and also the seventh and eleventh verses. A mighty fortress is our God, number one. Number two, the city of God, verses 4 through 11. And number three, the Lord of hosts. So you have a mighty fortress is our God, the city of God, and the Lord of hosts. Now the Lord of hosts uh, point is verses 8 through 11. Everybody got it? Okie dokie. Now, what I want you to see in this first verse, he said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. 
there's an important distinction to make. It's not that God has a mighty fortress. Notice with me, if you would, just for the sake of uh, the point this morning, verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He repeats it again in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And in the very first verse, he said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, this is important. And here's why. Because it's not that God has a mighty fortress. It's not that God is in a mighty fortress. Although you could nuance that and say that that's true. But it is this. It is that God himself is a mighty fortress. Not that God has one. Not that God's in one. But it is God himself, God the person, God the character, the attribute of God. What characterizes God is that God is in fact a mighty fortress. Now this is important because if you and I are in a relationship with God, we're not looking to go to a fortress. It's that God is our fortress. It's not something that God possesses or a locale that God is in. It's that God, he himself, is our fortress. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world around you. God is your mighty fortress. The idea is a mighty walled city in the ancient world and the galaxy far, far away at a time long, long ago, you know, uh, people, the people of the earth would build mighty castles. And these castles and these cities would be walled. If you've ever seen the film, uh, I don't know if I should mention this in church, but anyway, it's the film with uh, one of these big shot actors. It's the film Troy. You ever seen this film Troy? Huh? How many people like that movie? It's pretty good. I like Gladiator. <laughs> Wait a minute. I can't say that in church either, but I did. Okay. I like the film Gladiator. It's actually for historical things, it's pretty accurate the film Gladiator. You know, I'm a student of Greco-Roman culture. And in these films, what you see are these large cities that have 30, 40, 50 foot walls and they're 30, 40, 50 foot deep. They said of the city of Babylon that you could drive like six chariots around the top of the city. That's how wide the city was. The walls were tall. And the reason why they built tall walls and wide walls was to keep invaders out. Jerusalem, at the time that this psalm is written, is a walled city. It has a, it's a mighty fortress. And so the imagery being presented to us in the 46th psalm is that God himself is our mighty fortress. This is echoed in Luther's hymn that he wrote. And it's also right here in the text before us. In other words, he himself, that being God, and no other, none other, nothing or no one in heaven or on earth can protect us like God can. Therefore, we must be aware of counterfeit fortresses which may be able to protect you for a moment but ultimately fail to be and do what only God is able to be and do for you. Now, if I could be slightly novel this morning, 
I have three points of application. You can either have God as your mighty fortress or you can live in a glass house. It's actually a pretty simple choice. You can have God as your mighty walled city or you can live in a glass house. Number one, beware of the glass house of riches. Folks, listen. In a day of catastrophic calamity, the glass house of wealth can protect no one. The elites of the earth that think that they're high and mighty in their ivory towers, these people with wealth untold, billionaires that control puppet governments from behind the scenes, they think that in the day of catastrophe and calamity that they'll be able to seek refuge in the glass house of wealth and riches, and they're wrong, they're dead wrong. Your investments, your wealth, assets, and worldly things cannot protect you from the justice and judgment of a holy God. There are some who believe that they will find protection in these things, but they are like the foolish rich man. And Luke chapter 12 and verse 19, Jesus said, You have plenty of goods laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. They think that because of their goods and their wealth, their assets, their riches, their investments, their financial savvy, they think that that will allow them to escape the wrath of God and they're wrong. They're living in a glass house, a glass house of riches. Jesus says that all of those who trust in uncertain riches are fools, fools. Uncertain riches cannot deliver you from death, disease, heartbreak, failure, sin, or disaster in this life. And wealth certainly cannot save you from the final judgment day whereby all will stand before God at his white throne. I, you could not give me enough money to take away the hope that I saw in Deb Sparks this past Thursday night. I mean, laying there uh, on a morphine drip with a matter of days left on her life. And her hope is in the gospel. She's not clamoring. She's not trying to figure a way out. But her hope is in God. Beware of the glass house of self-reliance. Human ingenuity, specialized education, skills, or training are more things which people place their trust in. Even the most gifted human beings suffer sudden catastrophic setbacks in life and reversals of their fortunes. You cannot rely on yourself. Self-reliance is a glass house. You can either have a mighty fortress who is God himself, or you can trust in the glass house of self-reliance, glass house of riches. Thirdly, the glass house of relationships. Be very aware, your political and business connections cannot save you from the wrath of God, from the justice of God, and from the judgment of a holy God. Business associates, business associates, all earthly relationships with which people place their hope upon. Any, again, 
All of these are uncertain relationships at best, which may be and often are swept away in an instant. You're all, it's always interesting whenever I was in the world, and I don't normally tell you guys this kind of stuff, but give you an insider perspective. You know, when we, whenever I was in the world and I didn't know the Lord, they'd always used to say, you know who your real friends are when you go to jail. You know why you know who your real friends are when you go to jail? Because your real friends are the ones that write you and you find out that you really didn't have any real friends. Because when you're gone off the street and you don't have that sort of relationship anymore, people forget about you in just an instant. People turn their back on you for something that you say or a, a position that you might hold. You cannot trust in your relationships. Luther and the reformers knew this truth of glass house relationships all too well, so they placed their trust in the unshakable, unmovable God and His purposes. I want to quote a very touching, a very powerful stanza of Luther's hymn. He said, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, His kingdom is forever. Isn't that wonderful? I ought to write that on my wall somewhere. Don't tell the trustees. Man, I put it on the put it on magnet on the refrigerator, you know. Isn't that a wonderful stanza? I'll read it again. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abide is still, his kingdom is forever. It's absolutely staggering. And that's the message of the Christian, of the gospel, of the Christian faith. God is a fortress, and listen to this, God is a fortress for his people even in the most unfathomable catastrophes. I want you to notice, if you would, verses 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Can you even imagine? Look at the, the exaggerative language that the psalmist uses. I mean, have you ever heard of an event in human history where the earth gives way? Or the mountains are moved? Or the waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble? Think about this. The idea I had in my mind whenever I read this passage is like the film Deep Impact. You have an Armageddon asteroid barreling toward planet Earth at like, you know, 50 times the speed of sound and it touches down in the Pacific Ocean and there's a thousand, 10,000 foot mega tsunami that just washes cities away. I also think of the film Day After Tomorrow. I know what you guys watch. That's why I say it, all right? I'm not stupid. I know what the people are watching. So the film Day After Tomorrow, remember this? You know, they're on the mountain and the, earth, the waters are boiling up over the Mount Everest and so forth. I mean, this is a catastrophic event. And the idea in these verses is that no matter what happens, God is still a fortress. Just think about that. What kind of hope is that? You know, you're, when you watch these films, you're gripped with like this, this feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. And folks, there couldn't be anything further from the truth. I mean, if an Armageddon asteroid touched down somewhere and obliterated how much ever of the earth, God is still a mighty fortress for his people. What an incredible and staggering hope that is. That is the hope of Christ, the hope of the gospel. 
Here's an application by way of application for Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you may or may not know her. Very, very profound lady. Elizabeth Elliot endured the death of not one, but two of her husbands. Her first husband was Jim Elliot, who died at the hands of violent natives in Ecuador while attempting to preach Christ and the gospel to them. Her second husband slowly wasted away from cancer. When she recalled these tragedies, she referred to Psalm 46 and she said, quote, Everything that has seemed most dependable has given way. Mountains are falling, earth is reeling. In such a time, it is a profound comfort to know that although all things seem to be shaken, one thing is not, God is not shaken, end quote. Isn't that wonderful? What kind of staggering faith is that? To know that you know, when the mountains are literally crumbling to dust. I always like to think about when I go to my wife's family's house. You know, we drive through the Columbia Gorge. How many, how many people have ever driven uh, in uh, Washington State, in Oregon, Washington State, through the great Columbia Gorge? Anybody ever driven that? What's the name of that highway that runs through there, Kay? Interstate? You don't know? You're born and raised out there. Don't remember. That's all right. Well, that's Okay. It's called the Columbia Gorge, you know, and on one side, you can't, like, it doesn't matter what time of day it is, if the sun's over there, you can't see it. It's dark because the mountains are blocking the view of the sun. And like you, I'm, I'm not, listen, if you've ever driven out there, you know, you go to look up, like out your window, and you have to do this because the mountains are so high. You're talking like six, seven, eight thousand foot. In the middle of the summer, there's still snow up there. And on the other side is the Columbia River. Give you a little plug. The Native Americans, uh, they actually sell fresh salmon right there on the side of the road. If you're out there and get a chance to buy some of that fish, it's some of the best fish you ever eat. But uh, so on one side, there's mountains that are so high, it darkens the sun. And I'm always just deeply moved at how majestic these incredible mountains are. And to think of them crumbling to dust and being shaken and being moved. What kind of unfathomable catastrophe is that? And the psalmist says God is even able in the midst of that to protect you as a mighty fortress. Wow. When unimaginable calamities hit us square in the face, we must be reminded of the psalmist's words in verse 10. Look at them. Not making this up. Psalm 46 and verse 10, he said, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Wow. When we, uh, when we rest our fledgling souls on God alone, He will infuse our hearts with His strength so that we may endure. Now, the sermon becomes slightly dense, and you pray for me at this point, because verses 4 through 7 are packed full. And so I'm going to do my best uh, that I can to work through these verses with you this morning. While verses 1 through 3 emphasize God alone is our refuge, verses 4 through 7 show us that the city of God is our defense. So you have God as our refuge, and then now I want you to see um, in this passage, 
Yeah, let's go ahead and read verses 4 through 7 together. The Bible says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. I'll just read verse 4. Not only is God our mighty fortress and our refuge, but God is pictured. God himself is pictured as the city. The city of God in verse 4. What does this mean? Well, there's what we call a dual imagery that's in play here. The imagery presented in this stanza harkens to the city of Jerusalem firstly. So the psalmist has two, two ideas in mind, and I'll do my best to explain this the best I can. The city of Jerusalem, physically the actual location of Jerusalem, was viewed as the habitation and the home and the abode of God in our physical world. But the city of Zion is the city of God, the habitation of God, the abode of God in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly realm where God lives. So physical Jerusalem, the actual geographical location, topologically, that location was sort of a representation in our world of an even greater celestial city that God dwells in in the heavenly world. Is y'all, are y'all tracking this? So when he says the city of God, he has two cities in mind that are two separate locations, but the city of Jerusalem mirrors the spiritual city of Zion. Everybody with me? Now this is important because this same theme is going to come back up here in just a moment. What city of God and mighty fortress could the psalmist be thinking of? I want to give you a historical background and setting. I believe that this reference to the city of God, the refuge of God, the fortress of God, all these images is firstly talking about Jerusalem, but it's talking about an actual historical event that took place in 2 Kings chapters 18 and 19. Don't turn there, just put a mental note of it, because uh, it's two long chapters and I don't have time to go into all of it. But in the most simple sense, the psalmist, the sons of Korah, are picturing the destruction of the armies of Sennacherib during the reign of Hezekiah in 2 Kings. That text records God sending his angel. Now remember, the Assyrian army is encamped around the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a walled city like we've been discussing. It's a fortress. And the Assyrian army is encamped around the city of Jerusalem. And the, uh, the, the Sennacherib is the general of the army. He's a very evil man, by the way. And he's threatening to decimate and level the city of Jerusalem to the ground. Well, something very interesting happens is that God sends an angel and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. This is important. Because it says, quote, when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there, end quote. That's 2 Kings 19, 34 and 35. This is important. Because it was the city of God, the fortress of God, 
the refuge of God, the physical location of the city of Jerusalem that protected the temple and all the people of Israel at that time. The entire kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrian armies except for the city of Jerusalem. And only the reason why it didn't fall is because God still had a plan for that city and His ultimate purposes, and God ultimately slayed 185,000 of the Assyrian troops. Now, the Romantic poet Lord Byron wrote a poem about this event entitled The Destruction of Sennacherib. I couldn't help myself. Beginning with these two well-known lines, quote, The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. All right, so this is a very famous event. Uh, poets and scholars and theologians have referenced this event. Now, what does all this mean? That's what I always want to know. How does this help me to live for God? Pastor, you know, how is this going to help me in my daily life from day to day to live for the Lord better? I'm glad you asked because I have an application. I'm going to read this to you. It's a little blurb that I wrote up the, late last night. One of the most influential Christian treaties ever written was a book by St. Augustine entitled The City of God. The original work was written in response to the sacking of the city of Rome by the pagan Visigoth hordes in the year 410 AD. After that tragic event, the entire Western world lamented the fall and decline of that once great empire. There were many who waged that the chief reason Rome fell to the pagan invaders was due to Rome forsaking their pagan gods for Christ and Christianity. Augustine argues rather eloquently, to the contrary, Rome was in fact spared from complete annihilation because of Christ and Christianity and that the destruction of that great city of Rome was due in large measure to its own internal moral decay. Augustine envisions two separate cities. On the one hand, the city of God, and on the other hand, the earthly city or the city of man. These two cities embody symbols of faith and unbelief, which have been in conflict with each other since the fall. Basically, we are left with the question of which city do we have our citizenship? The city of God or the city of man? Well, this is important. Because Augustine and the sons of Korah in Psalm 46 both tell us that only God alone is our defense and security and that we cannot trust in walled earthly cities, but rather we must look to him who dwells in the heavenly city prepared for us by God himself. There is a heavenly city. It's an eternal city. It's a celestial city and is the true abode of God. And no matter what happens in Jerusalem, God is still dwelling in his heavenly city and we are either living for one city or the other. Now maybe God is calling us to minister in a crumbling civilization. Just like God was calling Augustine to minister unto. You may not like to hear that, but I actually think it's the truth. And what do we do as we are seeking to be faithful ministers amidst the rubble of a crumbling Western culture and civilization? 
we must hold to the city of God. The city of God is our defense, our refuge, our fortress. It is an infinitely greater city than any earthly city, any city that's built by man. It's a city of God where God dwells, wherein dwells righteousness. Now then, the Lord of hosts in verses 8 through 11, and I'm over time, but hey, we got a business meeting and no Sunday school, so you'll be all right. All right, this stanza does not look to the past. And they're talking about verses 8 through 11. It does not look to the past as the previous one did, but rather looks to the future, whereby God will defeat all armies and establish his kingdom in righteousness. I have to tell you this. This has really been touching my heart deeply. That's why I wanted to keep, keep you moving forward. I want you to notice verse 9. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Verse 9 presents God as the conqueror. So the peace that God is promoting in verse 9 is not because God will sign a peace treaty with his enemies. It's because God will ultimately pound his enemies into submission. I know that probably this is not a, a vision of God that we like, or this is not normal for us to think, but God is being presented as a mighty warrior, okay, on the battlefield. And I want to illustrate it with this point. After his victorious conquest of Italy and other places, the emperor Vespasian's campaigns were, commem were commemorated on a medal which pictured the goddess of peace on one side holding an olive, olive branch, and on the other side, the same goddess of peace held a torch setting fire to armor. So on one side of Vespasian's medal, you had the goddess of peace holding an olive branch. On the other side of the same medal, you had the goddess of peace holding a torch, burning armor. Okay? Now, there are two sides to the same coin. Because the olive branch represents negotiated peace. But on the other side... The holding of the torch and the burning of the armor represent imposed peace. Peace can either be brought through negotiation or peace can be imposed. And the imposed kind of peace is what verse 9 is picturing. Here it is. When you finally come to this phrase, be still and know that I am God, in verse number 10, you have to consider the previous verse. And the phrase, be still and know that I am God, does not necessarily mean that we are to lead a quiet and contemplative sort of devotional life in the midst of our emotional defeats, although that's true, and that's in part how dear Miss Elizabeth Elliot was using that passage. But I want to nuance that. I want to nuance that because you have to do that when you take the passage in its context. Basically what God is saying, be still and know that I am God. He's saying, lay down and surrender your weapons of warfare. Stop fighting with me and the world around you. Stop fighting with yourself. 
Lay down your arms and surrender your heart to me, and then I will give you my peace. See, this is represented in the gospel. You can either come to God on his terms through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the blood of the Savior and the Redeemer of the world, through God's own Son. You can come to God and receive the peace of God through the cross, or you can meet God on the battlefield. The problem is when you meet God on the battlefield, you will be mowed down like a blade of grass in the summer heat. You will be gone. There will be no peace The gospel is given to us by God. God desires a negotiated peace through the blood of his son, through the contract of redemption, through all that God has done in and through Christ. God wants negotiated peace. And God desires that, that we come to him on those terms, on the terms of the gospel. Repent and believe. Turn from your sins. Confess Jesus as Lord. Don't live like you used to. Let God change your heart and life. Live for the purposes of God, for the glory of God, for the service of God, and the people of God. That's the gospel. By faith, believe and be changed. But if you won't by faith believe and be changed and you choose to meet God on the battlefield, God will mow you down. You will not stand in the day of God's judgment. It's like the Emperor Emperor Vespasian's uh, double-sided metal coin, you know. This is a very powerful image celebrating the the, the two distinct ways that peace can be brought. Peace can either be imposed or peace can be negotiated. God desires negotiated peace through the blood and the cross of his son. But God will bring peace to the earth as the psalmist is saying in 46, any way that God chooses to do that. He is God after all. Be still and know that I am God means lay down your weapons of warfare. Stop trying to fight against God and the world and yourself. Let God be your God. Let God fight your battles for you. Take refuge in a mighty fortress who is God himself. Make your defense behind the city of God. Not the city of man. Boy, is this a needed message of our day. Now, I have more points, but hey, I can't get to them today. I'll leave you on this thought. Who is this God of Jacob? Who is this God of Jacob? Jacob was a trickster and a schemer, as his name implies. As a matter of fact, after he met the Lord, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. He went from being a trickster to being a prince with God. This is a wonderful change, a miraculous thing that God did in the life of Jacob. And God did that through a relationship with Jacob. What does it mean that the Lord of hosts is the God of Jacob? I like what the great Alexander McLaren wrote. He said, quote, the Lord of hosts is the God of Jacob. More wondrous still, the God of Jacob is the Lord of hosts. And what's... Dr. McLaren saying, well, he's saying that God, the Lord of hosts, it's Yahweh armies in Hebrew, the Lord of hosts. It's, we've uh, anglicized sort of the low, what, what was it in Luther's hymn? I'll read it to you. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Thus asked who that may be, Christ Jesus it is he. Lord Saboath is his name from age to age the same, and he shall win the battle. 
Who is this Yahweh armies? He's the Lord of hosts, but he's also the God of Jacob. He's the God of tricksters. He's the God of sinners. Do you want the Lord of hosts to fight for you, the captain of the Lord's host, Joshua? Yes, you must see yourself as a Jacob, as a deceiver, as a trickster, as a sinner, coming to God with nothing to offer him. Seeking refuge, not in your own ingenuity, your own skills, your relationships, your thoughts and opinions about what you think things should be like, but seeking refuge in God. God himself is your mighty fortress. And if you're in a relationship with him, you're not waiting for a mighty fortress. You're not going to a mighty fortress. If you're in a relationship with God, you are in God. And therefore, you are in a mighty fortress. Is this your God? The mighty fortress is our God. The God of Luther, the God of great Elizabeth Elias and St. Augustine. Is this God who is a mighty fortress, is he your God today? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. We thank you for the Baptist Christian Church. We thank you for what she stands for in Royal Center. Oh God, use this ministry to further your purposes. And I pray, Lord, that a mighty fortress is our God would be the hymn. Uh, of the hearts of the people. As Paul said, singing to yourselves in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Help us, Lord, to make that hymn our own, to clench the truth in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. God bless you.